Acts chapter 5, and then we'll go over to 1 Thessalonians. Before there was a church in Thessalonica, before there was a church at Philippi or churches in Galatia, the church was born amongst Jewish people who believed in Jesus Christ as Savior in and around Jerusalem. It was born in that area of Judea. And those who came to faith in Christ immediately felt the painful sting of persecution as a result of their faith. They immediately began to feel threat and pressure from others because of what they professed. Jewish opponents to Christianity immediately did everything they could to stop Christianity, to stop it spreading. Acts 5, 17 and 18 talks about the Jewish leaders arresting the apostles who were um, sort of the foundation of the church, the leaders of the church at that point. They arrested them. God freed them. They boldly resumed preaching the gospel. And verse 25 says that even as the Jewish leaders were meeting to discuss what to do with the apostles, that someone comes into the meeting and goes, look, they are out at the temple and they are preaching again. They are are preaching about Jesus Christ. Uh, So the Jewish high priest has the apostles brought in. And if you pick up in verse 27, Acts chapter 5, verse 27 says, and when they had brought them, when the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, had brought these apostles, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, when the council heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Stop there for just a second. Think back about Peter, who is leading this response to the Sanhedrin. Here is Peter, who, if you recall back at the time of the arrest of Jesus, is the one who denies having anything to do with Jesus on three separate occasions simply to protect himself. He is afraid of what will happen. And now we see Jesus, and he is standing before the highest authority in the land for Jewish people beyond the Roman government. This is now the the, the Sanhedrin, the high priest. And he is standing there, and he is preaching the gospel when he has been threatened with further persecution. This is Peter, just freed from prison, facing further arrest and persecution, looking into the faces of the Jewish religious leaders and saying, you killed Jesus. You killed the one God raised, and he is now at the right hand of God. He is now in heaven, and he is at the right hand of God. That is, that is as uncompromising and unflinching in the face of certain hostility as you can get is being willing to preach back to them and say, listen, if you try to stop us from preaching, I'm here to tell you we will continue to preach. And in fact, we will seize every opportunity to preach, even right now, preaching to you to repent and believe that you are sinning and you are disobeying and you need to turn to Jesus Christ. The reaction of the Jewish leaders is what we would expect. They are enraged, it says. And their immediate reaction is, we should kill these guys. This, what we did with Jesus has not stopped. Now it's this small little group, this zealous, annoying group. And so we should kill them and that will end all of this. And at that moment, one of the Pharisees, a wise 
Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel speaks up. And his words are recorded starting in verse 34. It says, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and drew away some of the people after him, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. That's a remarkable story. The, in the terms of the, the Sanhedrin, the high priest and his family, chief priests, Sadducees were all kind of the leading. If you were going to rank the, the governing officials, were all kind of the leaders. The Pharisees were sort of the low men on the totem pole. And so here is Gamaliel saying, hang on, guys. And he offers this little history lesson. He says, you remember, we, it brings to mind a couple of recent occurrences that, that he knows everyone in the room can understand of these insurgents who came along, whose, whose whole objective was to overthrow Roman rule and who were going to upset everything for the Jewish people by, by sort of smacking the hornet's nest, if you will, and stirring up the Romans. And, and neither one of them, as he describes there, materialized. They were crushed. The leader was killed in one case. They were scattered. Nothing came of it. And so that led Gamaliel to that great wisdom to say, guys, just leave them alone. Let's just, this is a small group. Leave them alone. If what they're doing is just like Thutis and, 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 and just like the other movements that have come before, we know the end of this story. We know what will happen. They, they will go away, they will be scattered. If this is just a bunch of guys who are running around with the teachings of some other guy who's already dead, this will work its way out and be over. But if by chance, if by chance God is in this, then we aren't going to be able to stop it. And as a matter of fact, we could find ourselves on the wrong side of history, fighting God. So keep that story in mind as you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want us to, to, to think about this work of God as opposed to the work of man that Gamaliel discusses and says, leave it alone. If it's of man, we have no fear. If it's of God, we ought not oppose it. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, as we're picking up in this book, this is the passage that we're going to look at this morning is Paul recounting when he first came to Thessalonica. When there had been no, as, we, as far as we know, no gospel preaching in, in Thessalonica, Paul had traveled around, had gotten a vision of a man from Macedonia, and so he had crossed the Aegean Sea, and he had gone into Macedonia, and he'd begun to preach. And so he gets to Thessalonica, and he enters the synagogue, and he begins to preach to them, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is your Messiah. Jesus is the one who was sent by God. He was crucified, he was buried, and he is risen, he is now Lord. You must repent and believe in him. And he begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The response to that preaching always does what, it, what it's done throughout history. It always sort of parts the waters. On the one side, there are those who receive 
who hear that gospel and they respond and they believe in Jesus, and then there is the rejection of the gospel by those who turn away from Christ. This passage that we're looking at this morning will deal with reception and rejection, but in a slightly different way. The reception and rejection that I want us to think about this morning is not just those two opposite reactions to the gospel. Rather, it is this. Many of the the Thessalonians who heard the gospel preached received Jesus Christ. There was the reception of the gospel by some. But those who did immediately experienced rejection. They began to face rejection because of their faith in Christ. They began to face rejection persecution because of their trust in Christ. The people of their own city began to turn against them, no doubt some being their own family and friends. Rejection's hard, isn't it? When when people that we have befriended, people that we trust, people that we have been close to suddenly turn against us, suddenly reject us, it's painful. I was, I was sad when I was unfriended by somebody on Facebook after a post. That is, that is hardly major league rejection, but I, I posted a, a, a pro-life story. A woman was just giving her testimony about how when she was pregnant, um, the doctors had told her of the potential for disease with her child, and they brought up abortion, and she was just explaining that that, that was not an option for her, that she was trusting God. And, and shortly after I posted that, I was unfriended by a childhood friend, and and I was sad, you know, been rejected. Again, that's, that's a pretty mild form of rejection, but rejection can be a reality for any believer. Some of you have gone through it on a more, much more personal level. You've had family members who, when you embraced the gospel, wanted nothing to do with you, or at least nothing to do with that conversation, nothing to do with your testimony, nothing to do with your walk with God. You perhaps have had friends or neighbors or coworkers who have made it clear to you that they want nothing to do with this Jesus that you believe in. The Bible, as it speaks of those who come to faith in Christ, sometimes uses the term remnant, a, a small part of the population. Jesus said this in Matthew 7 when he said, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Trusting in Jesus Christ puts you in a a smaller group, sort of a subset. You You are put in a smaller segment of the population. And many of the people who reject Jesus Christ are not just neutral in their rejection. They hate him, or they hate the gospel, or they hate your testifying of the gospel. They're not just neutral towards you, but they actually reject you because of it. Jesus warned in John 15, says, if you're of the world, of course they love you. If you're, if you're in the party with the world, the world says, we're great, we're friends. But then he goes on and he warns and says, but because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he goes on to say, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. It makes it very clear that that we face rejection. We face the potential for persecution. We face hatred for trusting in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, it's because you're resting in me and they hated me. And that, that hatred may well be magnified by how we live. 
If we are committed to the truths of Scripture, then we have been called to be holy. We have called to shine as lights in the darkness. We've been called not to look at the world with this fanciful sort of everything is fine and everybody's good and things are happy and we just all need to get together and everything will be fine, but rather we're called to look realistically and say this is a broken, fallen world and people are lost apart from Christ. And if they don't hear about Jesus Christ, then they are hopeless. We must call them to repentance and faith. So that hatred is magnified because we're, we're appealing to people who in some cases do not want to hear about Jesus and, and we proclaim it knowing full well we may face rejection. How do we do that? How do we be bold? How do we be courageous with our faith, courageous with our living, courageous to live differently and to be Christ-like? How do we have boldness in the face of the potential for rejection? How does someone like Peter stand before the high priest and say, I will not stop preaching. I don't care what you say. You are the one who is wrong. How does a group like these young believers in Thessalonica who hear this message and respond and say, well, we should tell others about this, and suddenly they become the targets of persecution? How how are they bold? How are they courageous? I, I think some of the answers are in this passage. It's a small passage. Just read the whole thing here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last." I want to break this passage down. Three points, all revolving around courage, stemming from the commendation of Paul to the Thessalonians of how they stood in the midst of persecution. So three points are a reason for courage, a resource for courage, and a reward for courage. You have these on the notes in your bulletin. The way this section starts in verse 13 should sound familiar. It's very reminiscent of the beginning of the letter when Paul started off by saying, we are thanking God always for you. We are thanking for your labor of love. We are thankful for your work of faith. We are thankful for your steadfastness of hope in Christ Jesus. That's how he began the letter. We are constantly thanking God for you. Here in chapter 2, verse 13 is, and we also thank God constantly for this. It's as if he's going back and saying, oh, and one more thing that we are always thanking God for. And this time he is thankful for how they received his word, how they received what was preached. And, and by the word at this point, he's clearly talking about the gospel because that's what he came and that's what he delivered. Jesus Christ, sinless savior, crucified, dead, buried, risen again, and now ascended to the right hand of God and the need to repent and believe in him. And so he has proclaimed this. So what's the source of their boldness then? How does this tie into courage? How does a young group of believers, new to faith in Jesus Christ, become a local church that stands when persecuted, that, that remains faithful 
when tried from every side? How is it that their testimony is spreading all over the known world? What is the reason for their courage? It is not only because they believe the gospel, but it is because of what they believed about the gospel. Not only did they come to repent and believe in Jesus as Savior, but it goes to what they believed about the gospel. Their faith was anchored in a conviction that what was being preached to them was God's word. God, by his grace, opened their hearts so that when Paul is preaching to them, they are hearing not just a man who has come, who's an itinerant speaker who comes around and talks, but there is a recognition that what they are hearing is from God. This is God who is speaking these things. This is God who is calling them to repent. This is God who sent his son. And so that's what Paul is commenting on here, is they, they, they realize, they receive the word, not as some other man-made philosophy in a culture that had tons of them, but as the word of their creator, as God's word. He uses two verbs in verse 13. You received the word of God. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. Two different verbs in the Greek. The one has the idea of that when you received it. The, the, the picture there is you, you sort of took it alongside and you, you, you held it up and you looked at it. You, you picked it up and you examined it. So as we were preaching, you were receiving in the sense that you were being a charitable audience. You, you were kindly listening and seeking to understand and, and consider this gospel. And then he says you accepted it. You took it to yourself. It's a word we talked about earlier back in chapter 2, the idea of, of taking to be one's own. I, I want this. So Paul's commending that by God's grace, you kindly listened to the word of God. You, it's like you held it up, like a, looking at a piece of jewelry in the store, and then you said, yes, I take this. This is valuable. I want this treasure for my own. And, and what he says here is it's not just a taking of the gospel, but you... You considered it, and then you said, oh, wait, this is God speaking. This is divine truth. This is the Creator's word. And you took it as that, not as some man-made idea. In fact, Paul is clear in verse 13 when he says, you received the word of God, which you heard from us. We could understand if the Thessalonians who are used to philosophers and itinerant teachers who come around and, and express their philosophies, hearing Paul and saying, okay, this is just another man, another guy with his ideas. And, and Paul is, is even kind here to say, the, the word of God which you heard from us, it came as the word of men. That's how it was at least spoken to them. It was a man who was teaching them. And yet by God's grace, you stopped seeing it as just this is Paul's story. You saw it as this is God speaking. This is God's salvation come to us. And you saw it for what it really is. What a person does with the gospel on at least some level comes down to how they answer questions of source and authority. Where does it come from and what authority does it have in my life? Source and authority. What you believe about where the gospel comes from and what authority it possesses over your life will go a great distance toward how you respond to that gospel because the gospel claims to be the dividing line of humanity. 
It, it doesn't make wishy-washy claims. It, it, it simply says, this is the truth. If you believe this and embrace it, you will find God's favor. He will save you and rescue you, and you will spend eternity with him. And if you reject it, you will be judged by God, and you will remain in your sin, and you will be condemned, and you will spend eternity in hell. There's no vague ground there. And so if you believe then that the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually truth proclaimed by God, if you believe the source of the gospel is the creator and that the creator is master over the universe and has authority to enforce that gospel, if you will, to both carry out its truths and to judge you by them, then you would be an utter fool to reject Jesus Christ. Yet some do. Some in the face of the gospel say, I will not bow the knee to God. I, sure, that, that may all be true. I won't believe it. I won't receive it. I won't bow in any way. Those who do typically reject the gospel in our culture probably more so fit in the category of, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of ideas on philosophy. There's a lot of different paths like the one that you're explaining there. There's a lot of paths to God, and, and most of them all have some component of good versus bad. Be good, don't be bad. Do, do more good than bad, and, and, and somehow it'll all work out. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes the unique claim of being the only way to be made right with God. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's that exclusivity that marks the gospel because ultimately the questions come back to source and authority. Where is the source of that message? Do we believe that it is the creator of the universe who made us and to whom we owe our existence? If so, then he has the authority to say, this is the way to be right with me. This is the way to, to reckon your sins and be made right with me. And so the Thessalonians who believed in Jesus did so, not only did they embrace the content of the gospel, but they were confronted with this truth and they realized this is from God. This is now the creator speaking. And we must respond accordingly to, to the source and to the authority. The word of God was a reason for their courage. Secondly, it became an immediate resource for their courage. The last part of verse 13, if you look at it again, says, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The verb there has the idea of, of energy, of, of something that produces effect in you. The word of God that you believed is the word of God, not as the word of men, immediately began to work within you. So not only are source and, and authority crucial, but then there is the, the energy or the effect of the word of God. Literature always has a way of, of, of moving us. You can read a story and read a book, and it, it can bring you to tears. It can cause you to laugh. It can move you to some kind of action. You can read things and say, ah, oh, you know, that, that, that did something for me. It's only one piece of literature that claims to be living, as Hebrews 4.12 says, that claims to be living and active and penetrating into the soul and changing the heart. 
Not living as the culture sometimes uses the term, like when it talks to the Constitution. Oh, it's a living document. It means it needs to change and adapt to the times. That's not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible is saying that the Word of God is God's eternal truth, and it is living in the sense that it works in us and, and convicts us and changes us. And that's why, that's why when you, you, you have that passage of Scripture that you're reading in your morning devotions and you're thinking to yourself, I know I've read this at least five or six times before, but all of a sudden this morning it is like hitting me altogether new and it's now convicting me of another area in my life. I'm reading the, the Word of God, and suddenly I'm coming away from it going, oh, great, now I have to go talk to my wife. Now I have to ask forgiveness, or I need to talk to my kids, or I need to be different about how I do the commute and handle the boss or the coworkers this morning, because the Word of God is living. And it gets down, it says in Hebrews 4.12, to intense, to motives. It, it, it begins to, to address me there in the heart. Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 11 says, when the word of God goes out, it shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. There is power in the word of God because it is God's spoken word. It is divine in nature. And so when it goes out, it doesn't go out and just fall flat and accomplish nothing. It accomplishes whatever God intended for it to accomplish. It will do that by his power. And so the word of God that the Thessalonians embraced when they saw that this was God's word immediately goes to work in them and it begins to change them and it begins to encourage them and, and strengthen them and, and convict them. It's powerful for life and for ministry because it's divine in nature. It exposes our sin. It convicts us. It reveals our, our, our motives it speaks encouragement and strength. When we're weak, we go to God's word in the middle of despair, and we find grace when God promises, and his promises are true, that he is with us, that he is present with us, that we are not walking through this alone, and he equips us for things through his word. It is the Lord doing this. And, and in fact, it's on a continual basis. That verb in ver at the end of verse 13, which is at work in you believers, at work is in the present tense. It is working in you. God's word is continuously at work in you. As you feed on it, as you read it, as you listen to it, it it's, it's changing you. It's transforming you to be more like Christ. As the Thessalonians received the gospel they received it as the word of God, and it went to work in their lives. And then Paul says, so here, let me, let me show you what I mean by how it's working in your lives. Verse 14, he says, for you, brothers, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea, because you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And then he'll go on to talk about the Jewish instigators. But he says, the word of God, he says, folks, I, I, I could see its effect I, I, I could hear about its effect. Not only did I see it before I left and then Timothy came back, but Paul has told us elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we don't have any need to talk about you to others because we hear about you. There, there are people who travel on trade and they go through Thessalonica and they somehow come in contact with you believers there and they are watching your lives and hearing your truth and word is coming back to me and saying, hey, did you... Did you hear about the church that was planted in Thessalonica? Paul says, I don't even have to tell them. Because what's happening there is the word of God is causing you to stand. And he says, you suffered persecution just like the churches in Judea. New believers 
in Judea, which is where Jerusalem was, immediately began to suffer. The book of Acts is, is replete with the stories of suffering of believers. Acts chapter 5, we read some of it before in the Apostles. Acts chapter 8 is the stoning of Stephen to death for preaching the gospel. And one of the people who was there when he was being stoned to death was a Jewish Pharisee named Saul who approved of that, who would later, we would come to see him converted as Paul. Acts 8.1 says, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Acts 12, verse 2 says, King Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. The governing official saw persecution as a crowd pleaser. The majority hate these Christians, so let's go ahead and take them out because that pleases people. Suffering was the, the normal course of life for those early Christians, those who were born in Judea, and then as the gospel spreads up through Galatia and on to Macedonia, this same pattern is repeated, where the call is to repent and believe, people come to faith in Christ, and immediately there is a hostility that begins to come upon them, from friends, from family, from outsiders, people who do not want to hear about Jesus Christ, and this persecution begins. And so Paul says to him, your fellow countrymen did the same thing. He's referring there to both Jews and Gentiles, to the idolatrous pagan Gentiles and the Roman leaders and the Jews in the synagogue, all of whom are just repeating this pattern that we see of coming against you. Now he says something, and we're going to step aside for just a second, because verse 15 he says something interesting as he's describing the Jews and what they had done to your, to your brothers in Judea. He says, verse 15, of the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all of mankind. Just side note here. Throughout history, this, this verse, this passage, and a couple of others, but this one is one of the predominant ones, have been used as a basis for anti-Semitism as a basis for um, condemning and persecuting the Jewish, ethnic Jewish people. Because the passage, it, it would seem, singles out the Jews for killing Jesus Christ and says they oppose all mankind, which was a secular theme as well at that point in history. The idea that the Jews seemed to disassociate with other cultures or look down on them was something that was held in the secular world and is in other writing. And so this verse has been taken to use to be a license for some to hate and mistreat the Jewish people. It's happened throughout church history. Some of this even shows up in later writings of, of Martin Luther. Somebody commented, I was watching a video this week, I was talking about Luther and called him an equal opportunity offender in the sense that Martin Luther said some nasty things about a whole bunch of different people over time. So some of it, maybe, you take with a grain of salt as being sort of a um, a tough personality, but the reality is early on, he talked about reaching out to and proclaiming the gospel to the Jews. Toward later in life, he wrote a, a little pamphlet called The Jews and Their Detestable Lies, in which he described the fact that Jews were not responding to Jesus Christ, and he advocated for setting fire to their synagogues, destroying their houses, and forbidding their rabbis from teaching with threat against life and limb. This is as... Um, Dave Shaw and I were talking between services, and, and he said it's a good reminder of, of why we're reminded in Scripture that don't follow Paul, don't follow Apollos, follow Jesus. Any, any of these historical guys have some kind of stuff like that somewhere in their baggage. 
but it all, a lot of it stems from this passage, to the point that some liberal scholars over the years have said this, this statement here about the Jews was probably inserted by some anti-Jew scribe later, because Paul was a Jew, and he was writing to an audience that included Jews who had come to faith in Christ, so what would be the benefit in him writing this? Well, the fact is, there's no reason to not see this as part of 1 Thessalonians. Paul was writing it. His intent was not to savage ethnic Jews as a group. His intent was, again, to be very clear in condemning those who were leading the opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the broader context of you Thessalonians are standing firm on truth, he was also pointing out that that, that truth has been opposed, and there are, are groups that have just made it their mission to destroy the gospel and its people. John Stott writes here, he says, Paul simply stating bald facts Many of his Jewish contemporaries were rejecting Christ, opposing the gospel, and hindering Gentiles from being saved. That's all Paul's saying. Pontius Pilate and the Romans carried out the execution of Jesus Christ, but the reality is, in terms of that place in history when that occurred, the responsibility lied with the Jewish people to whom the Messiah had come and presented himself, and they said, we don't want you as our Messiah. Crucify him instead. And so Paul is simply walking through a litany of what's happened in this unreal opposition to Jesus Christ. We, we saw this pattern of rejection over and over again as we read it through the Gospel of John. He comes to his own, his own do not receive him. They reject him. What Paul's really aiming at is that at the core of the persecution of Christians was a relentless hatred of the Gospel, was a, a determined effort to stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is as timeless today as it was then. And it's not isolated by one group of opponents. There have always been, since the gospel was first proclaimed, hateful people who reject Christ and who do not want to hear that message and, and want it stopped. You and I live at a time in our culture where even in a nation founded on freedom of religion, there is still a growing number of voices saying they need to be silenced, that what they preach is wrong, it's hateful. None of that should surprise us, because that's what Paul is alluding to here, the fact that there, were, there was consistent hatred for the gospel to the point, he says, that they were hindering Gentiles from hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. There's people crying out to hear the gospel, and, and there are those who stand in the way and who try anything they can to shut us up. It was in the face of that persecution that the Thessalonians show this remarkable resiliency and courage. That, that's the, the main point. This, this other point is sort of tangential to Paul's main point, which is the fact that they that, that God deserved great praise. That's where it starts. We continuously thank God because of the remarkable courage that he's hearing about from the Thessalonian church. God has graciously allowed you and is strengthening you to stand. He is giving you bravery. He is giving you faith so that when suffering comes, whether it's loss of job or even threat of life, you're being just like your brethren before that in Judea and saying, I'm not going to give up on Christ. I'm not walking away from the gospel. Just like Peter, I'm not going to stop preaching this. I, I'm, this is life. Why would I go anywhere else? To, to rehearse on the positive side, Martin Luther, when he is standing before the council that is ready to charge him for his blasphemy to the church, 
it, it is Luther who ultimately says, here I stand, I can do no other. I, I am committed to the truth of the word of God. You're not going to sway me off this gospel because I believe it's God's word. And, and, and so there's where the Thessalonians are. If this is God's word and that's what's at work in us, then we stand. We cannot be moved. We can't be afraid. We can't lose our boldness at this point because this is about thanking God who is the one who enables them through his word to see it for what it really is and then give to them the divine power to stand strong based on its truths and to rest in it. So the question then for you and I is how does that courage manifest in in your life? How is that, that boldness that courage that comes from believing that you stand on the truth of God's word, how is it making itself evident in your life? I see you looking at the quote from Richard Phillips. It's an excellent quote. Richard Phillips says, the issue on which courageous faith contends against capitulation to the spirit of the age is always the same. Is the Bible, the Holy Scripture, given through the prophets and apostles, is the Bible the word of man or the word of God? Our ability to stand firm against persecution with conviction and courage continues to turn on this question today. Do I believe this is the word of God? If I do, then it has called me to stand here, to live differently, to be holy, to proclaim Christ, to be kind, to pray for my enemies, to to act toward my family in a Christ-like manner. I, I have to believe what it says if this is the word of God and not just some suggested philosophy that's another New York Times bestseller and another idea about how to make life better. If this is the word of God, then I stand on that. So when the great moral debates of our time come, did God, does God's word speak to that? Probably does. And if so, what do I believe? I should see what God's word says, and I should stand there, and I should hold fast to that. Even when the whole culture says, come on now, it's 2018, times are different. Be different, think different. You know, we're called to stand. If we're convinced that we've been entrusted with the absolute, unchanging, life-changing truth of our creator, then the Bible is exceedingly more than any religious system or man-made teaching. It is the very truth and wisdom of our creator. The one who has made us has said, "This this is how to be made right with me. This is how to live in my creation. It is his revelation to man of everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need to walk in faithfulness before him. And it's powerful, right? It's working in us. It's a living word. The Spirit of God uses the word of God to change us, to expose sinful desires, to teach us to replace them with affections that are pure, just like the the replacing of the fruit of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit, to cultivate good fruit, to change how we speak, to give us joy and pain, to give us hope in times of despair and sorrow, to know truth, to have answers when we are faced with ethical and moral dilemmas. God's word is living and active and empowered by his Spirit and teaches us in those times. If we believe that and we've staked our lives on that and we're resting our eternity in the truths of God's word, then shouldn't we have the courage to live differently? Shouldn't we be able to look at the Thessalonians who looked back at what they had heard about the church of Judea and say, well, if they can stand firm in the midst of what they faced... How is it that I'm, I'm struggling to be bold with somebody who, who I know probably isn't going to do anything to me? They, they may unfriend me. And I'm afraid of that. Why? 
If we're standing on truth, we should be bold. When they do reject, they're rejecting the gospel of God. I was listening this week, and maybe some of you did as well, Desiring God sent around a sermon that John Piper had preached from out of 1 Kings 18, which is the story of the prophet Elijah and the confrontation with the prophets of Israel. It is, it is one man empowered by God and hundreds of prophets of Baal and other idols who are gathered against him, and God sets up this showdown between Elijah and these, these false prophets. And Piper, at one point as he's painting the picture, says this, God loves to be at a disadvantage just before he wins. Think of Joseph in prison just before he rules Egypt. Think of Gideon with his 300 just before he defeats the Midianite hordes. Think of Daniel in the lion's den. Think of Jesus on the cross. God loves to be at a disadvantage just before he wins. Now, me and my flesh, I want an advantage. I don't want to be at a disadvantage. I want to go in prepared and thought out and, and ready and knowing what's going to happen here so that I have every possible advantage. What Piper's saying is exactly right. And God has this wonderful way of redeeming out of the world the weak and the foolish and the despised and of putting us in situations where we are reminded then that only by depending on his word and his spirit are we able to see something happen? Are we able to see God work? And he does that precisely so that in that moment, we can give any victory that comes along right back to him because we were at a disadvantage going into it. We were resting in God and his sovereignty. Should we not be courageous with the truth and bold? And even if we are treated unjustly, even if in the end what happens to us is unkind and cruel, can't we still rest in the fact that God is just that's how he ends this. Verse 16, he speaks of the Jews hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, and now speaking about these same opponents of the gospel, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. This is not Paul saying, yes, they're going to get theirs. Because Paul is the same one who said, I, I would give up my own eternity if I thought that that would make the difference for the Jewish people to, in mass, embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. So there is, there is a heartbroken passion for people who need Jesus Christ. Paul's point here is to encourage the Thessalonians to be faithful and to stand fast and to know that in the end, here's your reward, God is just. You can rest in his justice. And so when you are treated wrongly, when you are treated with evil, when you suffer persecution for the name of Jesus Christ, just remember God is the judge. God is the one who will uphold you in your faithfulness, and God is the one who will judge those who have mistreated you. You can rest in that. That's the reward that he promises in his word to know that those who fight tooth and nail to stop you from spreading the gospel will ultimately stand before God accountable for their sins and for their lives. So be courageous. Because in fact, his, his description here is it, is, it is almost as if they are filling up a cup of, of God's judgment. They are just filling up this measure. The more that they oppose God, the more that they persecute messengers of the gospel, the more that they spew their hatred about the gospel, the more they are storing up for themselves God's wrath. Because God is just. So be courageous. Trust in the fact that he has given us his life-giving gospel. 
Trust in the fact that as we go from here and we proclaim the truth, it is, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, for some, it is that sweet fragrance of life. God uses it and they hear it and they hear it as God speaking to them and they are saved. And for others, it is the stench of death. It is the condemnation because they they reject it again and they turn away from Jesus Christ. If if this was just some man-made philosophy, going back to what Gamaliel said, 2,000 years ago in front of the Sanhedrin with great wisdom. If this was just some man-made deal, we wouldn't be here this morning. We wouldn't be singing and worshiping and fellowshipping and praising the great name of Jesus Christ, believing with our whole being that he is a risen and coming Savior and Lord and that we will spend eternity with him because we believe this is the word of God and it has endured through time, and we continue to love and preach its truths. It is still active. It is still energizing. It is still drawing opposition. It is still an object of hatred by many because it is still leading people to the cross of Jesus Christ, and you and I have the hope to rest in the truth of God's word and to believe it is what it says it is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray this morning that whatever as I've said, that has been faithful and true to your word, that you would take it and magnify its effectiveness and use it in our lives this week. Lord, I I plead that my thoughts, my ideas would not get in the way of your truth, that what you have made abundantly clear in this passage is you use human instruments. You used Paul to come and speak this truth. You use uh, my brothers and sisters here with their neighbors, with their family, with their coworkers. I pray, Lord, that, that as they serve you this week, as they have opportunities, that the people who are around them would hear your voice, even if they don't fully understand it, that you would begin that work of conviction and cause them to, to hear your truth coming forth from our lives. Help us to be people who, who like the Thessalonians, Embrace this, not because it's a, an interesting book, because it seems rich with helpful ideas. Help us to believe wholeheartedly that this is your word, your revelation, your truth to us. And as such, it is sufficient. It is sufficient to lead us, to cause us to walk, to cause us to please you, to give us the equipping we need to minister in and to the world around us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, and for the power of your spirit who ministers through your word to us. Thank you for convicting us and making it fresh and new and living and active and even judging, Lord, the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Thank you for the power of your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.